Today we're going to be looking at the Federal Vision, things that you might want to know about it. And if you're like, what in the world is the Federal Vision? This might be a good episode for you to listen to or a good series for you to listen to. I plan to do uh, a, a series of three episodes on the Federal Vision. Um, and, and even if you don't get into uh, the Federal Vision and all of its distinctives, uh, and even if it hasn't been something that affects you, the relevant issues and the issues that that the federal vision really causes us to reevaluate will be practical for you. And so stay tuned, hang out with us, see if this is going to help you. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it will. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us on any podcast platform, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, you name it. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to subscribe to the channel. You can do that hitting that red button below the video here and clicking that bell for continued notifications so that you can get content notifications on your phone, email, computer, or whatever. Uh, whenever I publish new videos, new podcasts. So uh, welcome, welcome. It's good to have everyone here. This is a series that I should have done a long time ago. Um, and and it, in a sense, it is a series that I did a long time ago. About five years ago, I started a series on the Federal Vision. Um, and as I thumbed through that series recently, it occurred to me that maybe it was a little bit too ambitious. I wanted to accomplish a lot in that series and actually uh, to be as robust as it needed to be and to follow through uh, on that series, I would have needed to add you know, four to five, maybe even six more installments. It already had four parts and it's still on YouTube if you want to go look at it and, and listen to those. I, I'm not saying it's not helpful at all. But I think what would be most helpful is if I were to basically revise that series and condense it down into three episodes, starting with this one, where I evaluate the core issues uh, having to do with the federal vision. And then that way, it's not taking the whole federal vision statement like I tried to do in the old series, coming through it picking it apart word by word, sentence by sentence. Uh, I, I don't necessarily want to do that because I don't think it's necessarily that helpful for those who are listening to podcasts. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing here. It's kind of a, a, a condensed version of what I was doing there, hitting really three main areas of the federal vision. Before we get started, I'm going to bring a PowerPoint up here. And those of you who are privileged to watch the YouTube videos can actually see that graphic. Uh, it'll be helpful visually. So if you're listening on a podcast, you want to tune in later on YouTube, that might be helpful so that you can at least uh, put some words to the uh, put some letters to the words. Um, but what I'm going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at three parts. Uh, and the reason I'm going to do that Usually when Federal Vision is brought up or when Doug Wilson is brought up or when Moscow, Idaho is brought up and, and, and the whole brand, you know, Canon Press and all of that, uh, or when Peter Lightheart is brought up or any of those guys, Norman Shepard, when any of those guys are brought up that are associated with Auburn Avenue Theology or the Federal Vision, um, it usually centers around the issues related to justification. And there are real issues there. In fact, we're going to look at that. And that's one of the main issues with federal vision. But what a lot of people don't understand or, or realize um, is that the federal vision is an entire theological system. And for all of the concern uh, amongst the federal visionists to just use the biblical language, there is an entire system that's implied with the joint statement on federal vision that's still available online. We're going to interact with that some. And so... Uh, what I'm going to do is just evaluate the wave tops of that statement. We're not going to go bit by bit through it. 
uh, we're going to look at three main things. This first part is going to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. It does the right thing methodologically. It begins with God. That's great. Uh, but what it has to say about God is quite concerning and I think revealing as to where the theological stances of uh, uh, of these guys lie. And, and, and keep in mind that uh, the names of the original signers or the signatories on the Joint Federal Vision Statement remain on the Joint Federal Vision Statement, even after Doug Wilson wrote a blog article that was titled Federal Vision No Moss, in which he basically just distanced himself from the nomenclature or the language Federal Vision, he still substantially subscribes to the Joint Statement of Federal Vision. So keep that in mind. Uh, there's a little bit of, uh, of confusion with regard to that. So let me bring this PowerPoint up here. Federal Vision, we're going to begin by looking at the doctrine of the Trinity that's in that statement. Now, Keep in mind, this is an entire system, and the things that are said in this statement aren't necessarily exposited, they're not elaborated upon much, there's very little definition, there's very little clarification, and there's very little precision, if I could say so myself, reading through this statement. And so sometimes it's difficult to understand what exactly they're getting at and what they're trying to do or accomplish theologically. And so keep that in mind. There is some ambiguity. We're going to have to wrestle with that ambiguity even here in this first uh, part of the Joint Federal Vision Statement. The Doctrine of the Trinity. The Second London Confession uh, tells us that the Doctrine of the Trinity is the ground. It is the ground of our comfortable dependence upon God, uh, and it, it is the foundation of our redemption. And so it's an incredibly important doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most principal or fundamental doctrine in Christianity. And so what I want to do is I want to be very uh, careful as we go through this. I'll be scrupulous as we go through this. And as I said, uh, the Joint Federal Vision Statement implies an entire system, and so we're going to have to do a little bit of prolegomena here so that we can sort through some things that the statement says. And when I say we're going to have to do some prolegomena, I mean we're going to have to do some some work on clarifying some assumptions, uh, going all the way back to what is theology. And so uh, let me give you a little bit of the roadmap here. This is a table of contents for the PowerPoint today, and you can see there are four points or four parts to this PowerPoint. We're going to look at archetypal theology. Uh, do not get too worried about that language. I'm going to explain that a a as well as I can when we get to it, but it's actually a very important concept um, that I think at some level every Christian assumes. Uh, and in much of this, when, we, when we're when we talking about creedal and confessional and systematic theology or, or, or dogmatic theology, even when we're talking about philosophy, there's a lot of things in philosophy and theology that just makes explicit what all Christians already imply in their belief. They already assume. And so uh, keep that in mind. Don't get don't get too turned off or scared by this kind of language here if you haven't heard it before. I'll try to explain it as much as possible uh, here in a moment. So the first thing we're going to look at is arch archetypal theology. Then we're going to look at God and human relations. Uh, and thirdly, we're going to look at covenant, the covenant of redemption. And then fourthly, uh, the statement in the joint federal vision statement. We're going to look at that uh, as he eternally is, that we need to imitate God as he eternally is, is the language that is used. Uh, we're actually not going to interact that heavily, or maybe 
let me say it this way. We're not going to interact uh, with the statement, with the joint federal vision statement, uh, as much as you might expect in this part. We, we're going to interact with it toward the end. A lot of this is just building us up and equipping us to be able to interact with it uh, with sober sober eyes. So uh, let me go ahead and, and move on to the next slide here. Now that we kind of have a trajectory, we know where we're going. The first part here is archetypal and ectypal theology. Theology in God versus theology for and in us. Archetypal and ectypal theology. You might be thinking, what theology in God? What does that mean? The, God's theology. Like what what does that mean? What does it mean to say God's theology or to say that there is a theology in God? And then what does it mean to talk about our theology in distinction from God's theology? And then lastly of all, why is that important to me? All right, those are all questions you're probably asking, and hopefully we will see why here in a moment. Archetypal and ectypal theology. This is the first slide. We're going to look at another slide concerning this. So some of these chapters that you see here, um, uh, are going to have uh, a couple of slides under them. So archetypal and ectypal theology. Um, before we get into the distinction between those two things, let's just ask the simple question, what is theology? Uh, and once we wrap our minds around a, a, a working definition of theology, we can, we can move on from there. Theology historically is defined as the study of God and all things in relation to God. Um, and if you're not speaking of theology in terms of its science, then you could remove that study part. You could just say theology is God and all things in relation to God. Uh, if you're talking about the science of theology, you would say, well, it's the study or the field wherein God is studied and all things in relation to God are studied. So theology is defined as the study of God and all things in relation to God. And nextly, you see it on the second bullet point. We ask the question, if that's what theology is, where does it come from? What is its source? Well, it has to come from God, ultimately. God must be the cause of theology. Uh, we say things like, with regard to divine revelation, we say, we wouldn't know any of this stuff if God did not disclose it to us. Even when we're talking about natural revelation, it's like, we wouldn't know... Uh, the mixed articles of the faith, things revealed through nature and scripture, we wouldn't know things revealed through nature unless God deigns to reveal himself that way and unless he determines to reveal himself that way. So he's the, he's the Lord of his own revelation, so to speak. He is the fountainhead of all true theology. God cannot give what God first does not have in himself, so he, since he is the source of theology, we would say that there is a theology in God, so to speak. Um, he has a theology, and this is what we mean when we say archetypal theology. Let me uh, read a helpful um, excerpt from uh, uh, Franciscus Junius, and this is from his work, A Treatise on True Theology, and he covers the archetypal-ectypal distinction. And he says, uh, archetypal or prototypical theology is nothing other than the divine wisdom of divine matters. By these words, we are not establishing a definition, but a loose definition of a certain analogous description based on an example from our own affairs and with a sort of figure of our own speech applied to divine matters. Backing up a little bit to the thesis that this is written under, he says, Archetypal theology is the divine wisdom of divine matters. Indeed, we stand in awe before this and do not seek to trace it out. 
This is God's knowledge. Okay, so when we say archetypal theology, or we refer to God's theology, we, we refer to God's knowledge, all right? And God's knowledge is inaccessible to us. Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that God has revealed to us, he's, he's revealed for us, right? And so um, we understand that God's knowledge is, is ineffable, it is infinite, it is one with his very essence. And so we cannot seek to apprehend that, uh, comprehend it. Uh, we don't know the content unless, of course, God deigns to reveal it to us uh, in a way that we can understand, in which case it's not his knowledge uh, that he's revealing to us identifiably. It is a creaturely accommodated version of it, so to speak. And that's where we get to ectypal theology, creaturely theology. So this theology uh, in God is incomprehensible. It's God himself, we might say. Only God can make it known. And as he makes it known, since he's making it known to finite creatures, he must make it known in a finite mode. All right. So for God to make that which is infinite known to finite intellects, he must do so through analogy, okay? He has to make what he knows known to us analogically. We don't know like God knows. God's knowledge is a simple act uh, of himself. He knows all things through himself. He doesn't know things through the things like we do. Um, we don't know through ourselves. We know through experience. We know by apprehending truth through sense organs and things of that nature. And uh, we don't know through ourselves. We have to, we're discursive learners. We, we have to pick up things as we go. And that's not how God knows, right? God does not know that way. And his knowledge doesn't depend on what he knows. Rather, what he knows depends on him. Okay, and that's not the case with us. Our knowledge depends on what we know. What we know doesn't depend on our knowledge of it, all right? Because we're not subjectivists uh, and we're not God. And so God gives to us a theology that's accommodated to us by way of analogy, all right? So it's a, it's a self-disclosure of God himself and God's will, but it's a self-disclosure of God himself and God's will in a way that we can understand. It's accommodated to us. It's revealed to us in accommodated revelation. And that is what we refer to as ectypal theology. Let me read another excerpt from, uh, from Franciscus Junius on ectypal theology. He says this, thesis eight, ectypal theology whether taken in itself, as they say, or relatively in relation to something else, is the wisdom of divine matters fashioned by God from the archetype of himself through the communication of grace for his own glory. So it's by grace that we have it. Um, he says, for God himself alone, not however any created thing, is the efficient cause of that disposition which we call theology. So it relies on God that we have theology in the first place. Um and, uh, and so on. And there's more we could say about that. Uh, an easy way to remember this is just to say that, you know, God's knowledge is not our knowledge. Uh, and what God has revealed to us is accommodated to us. It's, it's, it's related to God analogically, but it is not God himself uh, that is revealed to us. He reveals himself through medium, through means. 
and he does so in a way that we can apprehend. That is, he accommodates his revelation to us, and uh, and, and then that way we can we can apprehend it. The difference between those two things is referred to in terms of archetypal and ectypal theology. Now, this is relevant for where we're going. Because in the Joint Federal Vision Statement, you will see that there are certain things that are said concerning God, the Trinity, that would imply that we are to imitate him or know him in and of himself, that we need to imitate him as he eternally is, and uh, uh, and so on and so forth. That all covenantal relations in man are grounded in uh, in in in. God the Trinity, and we, we'll have to explore how they mean that and, and what they what they mean by that. Um, but the tendency is to confuse archetypal and ectypal theology. In other words, to make our knowledge the same thing as God's knowledge. And when we do that, we, we start to confuse the creator-creature distinction. Okay, so let's go on to the next slide. We're still continuing here with um, archetypal and ectypal theology. Uh, the joint statement uh, on federal vision or the joint federal vision statement does not make this distinction between theology when it begins. It begins at a very fundamental level because it begins with God. But even in the preface to the statement, it does not make the distinction between the- between two different kinds of theologies, nor does it elaborate on the need for analogy, how we know God analogically. All right, we We know him through means and we know him in a way that is proportioned to our to our intellect all right and so we, we we don't we don't we don't know God as God knows himself let's put it that way um, and and there's none of these distinctions are made in the statement I know the concern of the statement is to be biblical um, but for all of that concern there is little distinction made between creator and creature when it comes to Theology, knowledge of God, how, you know how we uh, how we relate to God as creatures. Uh, to be sure and to be fair to the statement, there is a creator-creature distinction implied, but I think it is confused uh, and it's not consistently carried out, uh, and it's not as clear as I think Scripture would make it. For example, Scripture all over the place distinguishes God from creature. God is not a man that he should. Uh, lie or change his mind. Um, God does not change. Of course, man changes. And so there's all these different ways that Scripture distinguishes God from man, creator from creature. So this the statement doesn't have that so much. Um, and so as such, the statement lends to a conflation of theology with economy. Uh, it, and when I say theology, I mean God. And when I say economy, I mean the creation. And so it lends to a conflation between God and creation or creator and creature. Uh, The statement reads, I said I wasn't going to get to the statement until uh, later, but here we have an earlier um, reference to it than I thought. Uh, It says, we affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. Now, what does that mean? Um, it, that's a difficult statement. Uh, it, it's part of the reason I wanted to look at archetypal and ectypal theology is because the statement actually uses the word archetype, but by archetype they don't mean what we would mean. Uh, and I, I, I'm almost certain that what is meant here is that the communal, allegedly the communal uh, activities between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
uh, and the relation between father and son specifically uh, is the ground for human covenantal relations. Um, Doug has spoken elsewhere about uh, subordination in the Trinity, and uh, he was in a sweater vest dialogue with James White, I'm not going to bring it up here, where he affirms a kind of subordination in the Godhead. Um, and so it would be consistent with that kind of language uh, to, to, to think of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the archetype, as kind of the exemplars of our covenant relations. And in which case, uh, that, that dynamic begins to look more like eternal functional subordination, where, um, you know, gender roles, you know, the relationship between male and female is grounded in a relation, an eternal relationship between father and son, where the son eternally submits to father. And there are all sorts of Trinitarian problems with that. Uh, you know, two wills are implied there, you know, one that has a superior authority and then one that has a, a, a an inferior authority and, and must will to subject itself himself to the Father. Uh, and so there are all sorts of, uh, of things that we could draw out there that would be problematic. But you, you have here in the Joint Federal Vision Statement, we affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. All faithful theology and life is conducted in union with and imitation of the way God eternally is. So if that second statement follows from the first, or if that second statement is an elaboration upon the first, then something very close to EFS or ERAS is intended here. Uh, all faithful theology and life is conducted in union with and imitation of the way God eternally is. That is the way in which God is in and of himself. And so we seek to understand, it says, all that the Bible teaches on covenant, on law, on gospel, on predestination, on sacraments, on the church, in the light of an explicit Trinitarian um, understanding. So you can see where the, the distinction between archetypal theology and ectypal theology becomes important. The distinction between the creator-creature becomes important. The distinction between theology-God and economy-creation uh, becomes very important. By the way, uh, Dr. Richard Barcelos wrote a very helpful book that deals with the distinction between Theologia and oikonomia, or theology and economy, and it's called Trinity and Creation. It's not a very long book. You should check it out. You could grab it on Amazon. You could probably grab it on, um, uh, maybe able to grab it through uh, Broken Wharf as well, although I'm not sure if they're printing it yet. Uh, try Amazon, and uh, that's a very helpful resource and may bring into clarity some of the things we spoke about here if you're still cloudy on some of this. So let's go on to the next slide and the next chapter uh, in this book. If this is a three-book series, this is the first book and this is the second chapter, God and Human Relations. We're going we're gonna to dive more deeply into this issue of God on the one hand and then human relations on the other. God and the grounding of covenant relations among creatures, which is clearly what the what the what the statement does. If you look back at the statement here, all faithful theology and life of the creature, we could say, is conducted in union with and imitation of the way God eternally is. Now, those who are proponents of eternal functional subordination make the same argument, just in relation, not broadly to the covenant relationships of man, uh, but to the uh, to the gender roles and relations uh, within marriage. Um, God and human relations. God and the grounding of covenant relations among creatures. So let's look at that in more depth as we turn here to chapter 2 of book 1. 
God and human relations. How should we understand covenantal relations? That's the phrase that the the joint federal vision statement uses. Covenantal relations uh, flow out of, as it were, uh, God in himself, flow out of the Trinity. Well, well, how is that? Well, it's a loaded statement, isn't it? Uh, and it's a loaded statement because it could it could mean several different things. And the statement really doesn't receive any definition in the Joint Federal Vision Statement itself. And so we're kind of left here to wrestle with possible meanings. Uh, and I, I don't want to speculate and I want to be fair to what's actually in the Joint Federal Vision Statement. But uh, there, as far as I can see, there are three possible meanings to that first statement there. So if you look at the first statement, we affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. What does that mean? We've, we've already talked about it a little bit and, and, and why it's important to, at this point, bring this creator-creature distinction into this conversation. But, but what does that mean? Well, there's three possible meanings. It's a statement alluding to the covenant of redemption. That the covenant of redemption, being an eternal covenant amongst the members of the Godhead, is the is the ultimate pattern for all other covenant relationships. All right, so maybe that's what it means. In which case, we could make that work, right? We we, we could we could understand that. We could kind of uh, appropriate that and get on the same page as far as that's concerned, as long as we understand covenant of redemption properly, not in a way that compromises God's incommunicable attributes like divine simplicity and immutability and so on. Okay, so that that's a possibility and, and one where we could we could potentially find some common ground here. But the second possibility is that it's a statement intended to ground human relations and roles related to covenant specifically in the relations or the roles between Trinitarian persons, in which case you would have something inseparable from eternal functional subordination or eternal uh, relational authority submission uh, per uh, Dr. Bruce Ware. And, and so that would be problematic. If what, we're, if, what, if what the statement is saying is that what goes on in God eternally is the pattern for the same thing or something similar uh, going on in man finitely and temporally, well, then we've got a problem because there, there's a sense in which we're, we're confusing creator and creature on several different levels. We're making God like man in order to ground man's activity in God. And so that's problematic. Um, thirdly, it could just be a statement regarding the prerogative of God to set the terms of the divine of, of, of every divine covenant. That that God is the He's the archetype. He's the He's the commandant. He's the He's the one who is Lord and has all prerogative to to impose covenants to to set the stipulations for covenants to give the blessings for covenant. Uh, membership, and so on and so forth. But I don't think that's what it's saying, because if you look back at the statement, it says, we affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations, all right? And that that, archety uh, that archetypal language, it, the idea here is that it's the, it's the exemplar. So if you think of uh, the difference between a painting and what the painting is of, the painting is of the exemplar, right? The person posing for the painting is the exemplar, and the painting is the ectype. The, uh, the painting is the, is the reflection of the archetype, so to speak. And so if, if what they're saying is that 
God is the archetype of human covenantal relations because in God there's something going on that's transactional, uh, that is like what goes on within a human economy, then we could we could have some problems um, there. So uh, I, I, given the language of the statement, just trying to be fair to what what it indicates, uh, it doesn't look like it means the third option here. It's not a statement regarding the prerogative of God to set the terms of divine covenants. It says more than that. Um, second slide here, uh, still on God and human relations. So if the statement intends, because I, I think it's, it's, I think it intends something closer to the second, given what Doug has said in the past, uh, given the uh, language in the first paragraph there of, of the, of the statement, I, I, I tend toward thinking it's, it's, it's saying something at least similar to the second option here. Uh, and so if it is, if the statement intends to ground human covenantal relations in the relations between persons in the Trinity. In other words, if it's saying that here are the greatest examples of relations for humans, and we just imitate what goes on amongst the persons of the Trinity, well, there's, there's, there's some problems. Um, because something like eternal functional subordination would follow. Um, and, and so, uh, and that's because essentially human relationships... Or, or, or human relationships would depend upon the relationships inside God, right, among the persons of the Trinity. Um, but if, if you notice there, there's a subtle, uh, actually dethroning God. There, there's a subtle kind of making God like us, understanding God like us. There's relationships in God, more like social Trinitarianism, that there are three beings that are in relationships with one another. And then we, we copy those relationships, Right, we copy those relationships as best as we know how, and, uh, and and this is, I think, the implication of a lot of eternal functional subordination that's in print. Uh, I think it's it, it's it's always the danger there once we start talking about any sort of subordination in the Godhead, where uh, one member of the Trinity has to will to submit to another member of the Trinity, and that. In that case, you get multiple wills in the Godhead and, uh, you know, authority and submission in the Godhead. It starts to look like that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just three beings who are on the same team. All right. That, that's the implication. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone who confesses EFS says that. In fact, the great majority of them won't. Um, they'll maintain trivially the Orthodox language, but they will, I think, imply its undermining with some of the claims of eternal functional subordination. And so all of this to say, it's very important to observe the creator-creature distinction. Uh, it's very important to consistently do theology in light of divine incomprehensibility. Not only does that engender a sense of humility, because we're creatures and we cannot comprehend the divine essence, um, but it also tells us that the way in which we speak about God is a distinctly creaturely way, and that brings us to the importance of analogical predication. What we predicate about God is always improper in the sense, that doesn't mean it's wrong, by the way, it just means it's improper. It doesn't apply to God in a proper way. Um, and, 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 and that's the case in the sense that none of our words, because all our words are finite, 
and their their capacities are finite their 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 ability to to be pregnant with a, a certain amount of, of of meaning is it's all finite and our words really grasp when it comes to an infinite being and so we have to understand our language is analogically expressive of the divine it's not one to one correlative or univocal of the divine it's analogical predication uh it's 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 likeness in our language or similitude in our language but not identity in our language when we're talking about god all right so we don't talk about god like we talk about other human beings we don't our, our language doesn't apply to god like it would apply to a man our language doesn't apply to god like it would apply to uh, this bottle here, or this computer, or this camera that I'm talking into, or this microphone for that matter. So, very important considerations. Again, federal vision is not just justification. It's not just a, uh, a, a theology of, of salvation. Um, it's not just a practical theology. It, it is a, a somewhat comprehensive system beginning with the doctrine of God. And as we can see here, there are some statements made in its doctrine of God that would seem to distinguish it from a more creedal, confessional, and I would say biblical understanding of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And so moving on to the next thing here, chapter three, book one, covenant of redemption. Uh, I want to say something of the covenant of redemption just in case, you know, someone was to come in response to chapters one and two here and say, well, you believe in the covenant of redemption. That's in the Second London Confession, and I can find language about the covenant of redemption all over the place in John Owen and, 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 and this or that. So why are you criticizing the joint federal vision statement for implying EFS if your doctrine of the covenant of redemption is basically uh, a, a certain version of EFS? I mean, if the covenant of redemption is the Father sending the Son and the Son voluntarily going uh, in response to the Father sending— um, then, then that sounds just like EFS. So what's the difference here? Well, that's what I want to get into here. I want to take this as an opportunity to uh, distinguish a confession of the covenant of, re of redemption from contemporary accounts of eternal functional subordination. The covenant of redemption refers to that eternal covenant in God that is uh, it, that entails the Son being sent into the world by the Father for the redemption of man. And so this is an eternal covenant in the Godhead. It explains why at some point in the economy, the Son incarnates, the Son then accomplishes the work of redemption, and then eventually the Son applies the work of, the re of, of redemption. So the covenant of redemption uh, is in God and explains the outflow of redemption that God uh, that God um, uh, affects. And so as we think about the covenant of redemption, we have to remember that the covenant of redemption has to be understood in terms of the divine decree. All right, it has to be understood in terms of the divine decree and in relation to the eternal processions. All of these things have to come together and be considered as the covenant of redemption is considered. Okay, so again, 
we have to understand the covenant of redemption in terms of the divine decree, which is one, and in relation to the eternal processions, which are three. Okay, so we have the Father. The Father is said to send the Son to 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 send the Son because He begets. All right, His position in the order of processions is one of begetting the unbegotten begetter. And because he is the unbegotten begetter, it is proper to say of him that he sins the son. The son proceeds from him as begotten eternally. All right, these processions are in God eternally. And we might say that these processions are not three different things in the divine essence, but that they are uh, um, three uh, modes in which the single divine essence subsists eternally. Uh, or we might say that it's the one divine essence begetting the divine essence. All right, so you can see where I'm going with this, that it's a single divine essence uh, begetting, being begotten, and spirating in the case of the Holy Spirit. But we're not speaking of anything other than the divine essence, but we're talking about the processions. All right, and this is the only way in which we can speak of distinction in God, uh, is through way of the order of processions. So the Father is said to send the Son into the world because he begets the Son eternally before all ages. The Son is said to agree, that language is used improperly and analogically, but the Son is said to agree and then be sent because he is eternally begotten. So it's fitting for him to be sent because he's eternally begotten. The covenant of redemption may very well be said to be the divine essence subsisting in Father and Son under consideration of the divine will to redeem. All right, so let me try to explain this a little bit. The divine will is the divine essence. All right, there, again, going referring back to divine simplicity, the divine will is not a different thing than the divine intellect. In, in humans, we'd have a distinction between intellect and will. Um, in God, the only way we distinguish between intellect and will is, 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 is not substantial. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's analogical in our own minds, and it's, um, uh, it's, it's conceptual. Uh, there's not a real distinction between God's intellect and will. They're, they're all one with the single divine essence. And so the will is the divine essence subsisting in three relations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or unbegottenness, uh, unbegottenness, the, beget the begotten, and the spirated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that one will subsists, right? That one will or one essence subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of this language is analogical. We have to understand the limits here. Uh, there's no real transaction taking place between Father and Son in eternity. I don't think, even the confession, when it uses that language of, of transaction, uh, you know, in the, in the chapter on, 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 on covenant, uh, it, it's, not, it's not speaking as if there was some kind of uh, mutation or, or movement or motion or change or diminution in the divine essence because the the language of covenant has already been conditioned by chapter two, right? On, on the, on, on God and the Holy Trinity. And so we, we take with us and we take for granted the fact that God is immutable and so on. 
So how do we understand the language of the covenant of redemption? Well, we understand it uh, as, uh, as we understand it decretally. The divine decree subsisting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, there's more uh, I could say about that. But this, these words, you see on the PowerPoint, these words, uh, these are words we use to casually and relatably speak of essence, decree, and trinity in relation to redemption. Covenant of redemption is a term we use to casually and relatably speak of essence, decree, and trinity in relation to the project of redemption. Okay, moving on, part two here of covenant of redemption. Given what we would want to specify concerning the covenant of redemption, what we've just looked at, it still wouldn't be right to use it as a pattern for human roles or covenant communication like EFS or the Joint Federal Vision Statement does. All right, we wouldn't want to do that because it is this the, the covenant of redemption and everything in relation to the covenant of redemption in God it is frankly impossible that man should imitate God ad intra, aside from analogical participation in communicable attributes like love, holiness, knowledge, etc. But even participation in those attributes are analogical and creaturely and accommodative to us. Uh, and so we, we have to remember that. Uh, we can't imitate God ad intra because God does not consist of form and matter. He's not act and potency. He is not visible, and so on. And so the only way in which to really speak of imitation of God is to speak of it in terms of our participation in, in communicable attributes, which are like the virtues for us, all right? Uh, that's the only way we could properly say man imitates God ad intra, as if God ad intra. I mean, we, can, we can't, we can't, we have to be careful um, uh, we have to be careful that we do not make God like a man. All right. The only way we could properly say man imitates God ad intra is if God ad intra were like man. All right. But God ad intra is not like man. God is not like man in and of himself. All right. Uh, and so, and, and, and so that is to say that he's not, you know, there, there's not a one-for-one -one correlation between what we are and what God is. Um, God is other than man. Now, I won't go so far as to say he's wholly other, because again, there is a way that man can relate to God, and man can know God, and, and, and God can reveal himself to man. Um, and so there is uh, similitude, but it's analogical similitude. It's not similitude in terms of greater or lesser, like as if God is just on the top end of a sliding scale of being. Uh, it is uh, similitude in terms of analogy, uh, that there is an analogical likeness or similitude in us to God. So when, when we're talking about God's love, we can actually know what that is, right? Uh, we can know that there's there's something like that love in us without saying that we can comprehend or or, or fully understand uh, the love that is properly in God. Okay. Uh, we can't know that love in and of itself. It's infinite. We can't know what is infinite in and of itself. Uh, otherwise, that which is infinite would be subject to the quantification of discursion in our minds. And, uh, and, and that's, that's impossible. That's contrary to what it means to be infinite. Okay, so the only way we could properly say man imitates God ad intra 
as he eternally is, to use the language of this of joint federal vision statement, is if God ad intro were like man, but he's not. Okay, he's 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 not like man. Hence, why grounding human relations in the Trinity often leads to identifying the Trinity with human relations. That's the danger. And I want to say that it's not only the danger, it's the inevitability. If we want to ground human relations in the doctrine of the Trinity, then we are pressed to find things in the doctrine of the Trinity that are like us. And in that project, in that process, what we end up doing is we end up making God like us. And this is the issue with EFS. I think it's the same issue with the statement here in the Joint uh, Federal Vision Statement. So moving on to our uh, fourth chapter now, uh, the statement of uh, that we imitate God as he eternally is. Uh, again, this is, let me go back to, let me go back to the state, what the statement says. We affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. All faithful theology and life is conducted in union with and imitation of the way God eternally is. All right, so uh, coming up to that statement, we're going to look at that statement a little bit more. Imitating God ad intra, and I think I only have one slide here. Yeah. Okay, so eternally as he is, eternally as he is, all faithful theology and life is conducting in union with God, with and imitation of the way God eternally is. And so the statement says, we seek to understand all that the Bible teaches on covenant, on law, on gospel, on predestination, on sacraments, on the church, in the light of an explicit Trinitarian understanding. Um, as humans, and I think this is this is this is probably self-evident to every everyone. Um, we have to imitate what we can sense. We can only imitate what we can sense. You can only imitate what you can see. Uh, and, and this means we, we have to imitate what is revealed to us. What is revealed to us is not God in and of himself, but is accommodated revelation, analogy. And that means that we must imitate the incarnate son as he is revealed to us in accommodated revelation. Why did God become man if God were imitable before he became man. One of the reasons, we get this in the Apostle Peter, is for, for Christ's condescension to us in the incarnation, among other things, it wasn't just to be an exemplar for human behavior. I mean, there are theories of Christology and the atonement that would suggest that. That's not the case. Jesus didn't come just to be an example for human life. All right, But he did come to be an example for human life. It's just, he just didn't, he, it's, that's not the only reason he came, but he did come for that. Now, why would that be part of his mission if God was imitable because of the economy, because of the, because of the persons of the Trinity, if God were imitable prior to the incarnation? If one of the, if one of the crucial functions of the incarnation was to produce an example for man, right? It would be superfluous if the Trinity was uh, imitable uh, for human life prior to the incarnation. One of the wonders with the incarnation is that 
it had to happen because God is who he is. Uh, he's immutable. He's simple. He's invisible. He's, he's non-material. And so, you know, he, if, if God was going to redeem man by standing in man's place as mediator, he had to assume man's nature. If God is going to be the exemplar for faith and life, he has to assume man's nature. To show man what life is like in Christianity, in the New Covenant, and so on. So we, 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 we look to the incarnate Son as that which we imitate. All right? We don't try to find the basis for human economy, for the human family, for human social uh, dynamics in the ineffable doctrine of the Trinity. All right, we look to we look to uh, examples and we look to instruction in God's revelation. We don't look to God as He is in Himself, which is inaccessible to us. We only have access to what God has revealed. Unless we're speaking of the communicable attributes, love, holiness, etc., what we mentioned earlier, in what sense could we possibly imitate God as he eternally is? Now, eternal functional subordinationists will say, well, we imitate God because, you know, the Father has authority, the Son is subject to the Father, willfully subject to the Father, and so you, you carry that dynamic and impose it onto the family, and, and that's how the family, the dynamics of the family, are grounded, is directly into the relations between Father and Son. And Holy Spirit. Um, how could that be the case if God is ineffable, incomprehensible, and if there really just is a single divine essence subsisting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one divine will, one divine decree, and so on. So this is Again, this is just the first of three parts. Uh, the next part, we're going to look at uh, some other things. We're, we're not just going to spend our time on one uh, paragraph of the statement. We'll look at a couple of statements, one of the or one, a couple of paragraphs. But one of the things I want to look at in the next part is uh, their their paragraph on the church. Um, there's some important things said there. The third part we will take up and we'll spend the whole time in. Uh, justification and, and and law gospel stuff. So uh, hopefully this has been helpful. Um, uh, you can see that there's credits here. The presentation template was created by SlidesGo uh, and includes icons by Flaticon and infographics and images by FreePix. So I got this uh, 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 this wonderful background for free. I love it. It's it's very nice. I'm going to do the whole series in it, uh, but I have to give them credit. Uh, to use it. Um, so anyway, guys, if, if this was helpful for you, um, and if it was enlightening, again, what I want to do is I just want to bring home the reality that federal vision is a theological system. And part of the reason I want to go through the doctrine of God here is not so much just to tear apart federal vision, uh, but to show you that federal vision is more involved than just the doctrine of, of of justification. And there are things we should be concerned about with regard to federal vision that go beyond the doctrine of justification. So we're going to look at the problems with justification and law gospel distinction and all of that later on, but there are problems, with there are issues with the doctrine of God. And, and I think we see that practically in things that, you know, Doug Wilson has said and those who are associated with him and, and, and in the way that 
really the importance of Trinitarian theology has been downplayed uh, in in the Moscow movement and so on. And so I think these are things to be aware of. Hopefully this was edifying. If it was, share it, because if you benefited from it, chances are someone else will as well. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.